This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Operation Homefront is a national 501c3 nonprofit whose mission is to build strong, stable, and secure military families so that they can thrive, not just struggle to get by, in the communities that they have worked so hard to protect. For more than 15 years, Operation Homefront has provided programs that offer relief through critical finance assistance and transitional housing programs, resiliency by providing permanent housing and caregiver support, and recurring family support programs and services that help military families overcome short-term bumps in the road so that they don't become long-term chronic problems. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with the president and CEO of Operation Homefront about the wonderful programs that they provide, how you can find out more about them, how you can access them if you need the help, and what you can do to volunteer if you feel like doing that. This is an organization that has handled more than 40,000 requests from military families across the U.S. and has provided more than $25 million in relief through their various programs. It's a terrific organization, so stay tuned and you'll find out a lot more about them. Today's show is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union, which has been proudly serving the Armed Forces veterans and their families for over 80 years. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or the Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, I had one thing on my mind. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball every chance I could. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn the signs of a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. Because the sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in their recovery. I'm Paul George. Protect the ones you love. Spot a stroke F-A-S-T. Fast. Life is why. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is retired Brigadier General John Prey, who's the president and CEO of the organization called Operation Homefront. John, thanks for joining us. Armin, thank you so much for having us on today. Well, my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about Operation Homefront. There, there are so many wonderful organizations out there doing good work to help military families and uh, had heard a lot about you guys and didn't really know that much about what you do. So let's let's talk. Well, thank you for allowing us some time on your uh, show. Operation Homefront uh, was founded uh, 15 years ago uh, in 2002 by some spouses who wanted to take care of their um, loved ones who were deployed downrange, and we have grown over the intervening 15 years to a national organization that is designed to serve military families. Okay, and you do that in a an amazingly wide variety of ways. 
I mean, there's financial assistance, there's building homes, there's back to school programs. I mean, I, I want, I want you to talk about some of these programs in some, in some detail, but it, it, it can't have grown to the colossus that it is. Was that the, uh, was that the initial mission of the thing was to create something that big and broad or were the folks who started it back in 2002 just uh, were thinking small? Well, I think uh, the, the uh, founders were thinking just about taking care of their loved ones. And, uh, and as they have grown over the intervene, as the organization has grown over the intervening years, uh, we have taken on a variety of different responsibilities. Uh, we found that many military families, uh, particularly those that are transitioning back to their civilian communities, are struggling to make ends meet and really unable to thrive in the communities, our communities, that they have worked so hard to protect. I think all would uh, believe that this is a tragedy, and Operation Homefront, with the help of Caring Corporate Foundation and individual donors, provides a variety of programs to put their lives back on track. And our programs are kind of divided into three broad categories. We have relief, resiliency, and recurring family support under the relief uh, way we do business is our critical financial assistance program where we help uh, those military families with a variety of uh, bills, uh, rent, mortgage, utilities, home repairs, car repairs, um, groceries, and, and the like um, to get them through uh, the bumpy space. There are uh, many families in the U.S. And, and military families are no different that when faced with a $1,000 bill, they'd have a, a difficult uh, time paying for that. Yeah. So sometimes these Families are literally one car repair away from a financial disaster. Well, let, let me just, before you go too far into that, why is that happening? I think a lot of people, particularly civilians, have this idea that the military, they have their meals taken care of, they have their housing taken care of, so they should be just socking away a bunch of money. Why are they having financial difficulties? What's going on there? Well, what happens, is particularly to those families that are in transition, uh, they tend to underestimate how long and how difficult uh, some of those transitions back to civilian communities can be and underestimate uh, those challenges. And, and then by, by extension, as they get into those transitions, find there's a variety of different things that they need to pay for. They need to build new homes, they, I mean, or get into new homes. They need to get into communities. And, and all these costs and expenses add up and, and oftentimes overwhelm the money that they have been able to save. And we are there then to help them through that space by providing some paying paying some of those bills for them. Okay, and and that is hopefully a short term kind of a thing. Is is there a time limit that's set up for that, or how does it work? It, it is. We we don't. Um, uh, uh, we can have military families apply, and and for a variety of different things, they can have more than one request in each one of their applications. So, for example, a family may be having some difficulty, and they may say, "Hey, I'd like to get." Three, um, a help with three months worth of rent, one month worth of groceries, uh, one or two months worth of utilities. And then we evaluate those and we have caseworkers to take a look at their financial status uh, and, uh, and how they're working through um, their financial challenges. And then we were able to provide uh, assistance. Our assistance uh, to the exclusion of groceries, groceries get we pay directly to that family. But all the other um, bills that we pay for a military family are paid to that particular vendor. So if it was a, a mortgage mm-hmm. company or a rental company, those kind of things, we would pay them directly uh, so that uh, so that the family takes the, takes the burden off the family. Okay. And are these things grants or short-term loans or something in the middle? They are complete grants. We don't expect our military families to repay any of uh, the uh, the items that we provide uh, for them. 
Um, and so this is, uh, like I say, our way of, as a American community to rally around those that have done so much for all of us. Okay. All right. So that's the relief part of it. Then you had some resiliency was another one of the pillars. Yeah, before I get off the critical financial oh, assistance, okay. I, I'm really proud to say that we're coming up on our fulfilling our 40,000th request. Wow. 40,000 requests we have received, and to the tune of almost $22, $23 million. Uh, we're expecting to reach our $25 million mark this year. For the resiliency, one of our flagship programs under the resiliency uh, uh, way we do business is our Homes on the Home Front, uh, where we partner with a variety of banks and, and mortgage industry uh, professionals to provide mortgage-free homes to military families. Uh, we have uh, coming up on our 600th home that we'll have awarded, uh, deeded value uh, in excess of $65 million. And that program uh, requires a family to apply. Um, we get about anywhere between 150 to 200 applicants per home. But when we do make that final selection of that family, they are in that program for two years. And so they understand all the different aspects of home ownership. And at the end of the two-year period, we deed them the home. And so they have that home free and clear. And what's very exciting about that is 97% uh, of the families that we have deeded to uh, a home to remain in that home. 80% have uh, stayed in that particular home, and another 17% have actually sold that home and bought a bigger home as their family needs have changed. So this particular program has a tremendous positive impact on our military families. That's absolutely huge. I mean, that can be a big ticket item, obviously. I mean, that's... It is, and it, and it has a long-term, and a, we call it a generational impact, because that equity in that home can be transferred to their kids uh, and improve their lives uh, as they go uh, uh, down uh, as the years go by. Uh, our final program uh, or series of programs is what we call recurring family support. Uh, there are a variety of times throughout the, the calendar year that are particularly challenging for military families or particularly costly. Going back to school, for example, uh, our holiday time, whether it's for holiday meals or holiday toys, uh, or uh, we have our expectant mothers. We have a, a program called Star Spangled Babies. So all of these different programs are designed to kind of help our military families through those particularly challenging financial periods throughout the year. Okay. And just to make sure you're not at all service-specific, it's any, uh, any and all not. services. We, no, we are not. Um, what we, we tend to focus on those families that are um, anywhere between uh, one to seven years of separation or retirement from the military. Um, the goal there is to try to catch them and, and help those make those transitions very smoothly. Uh, we do help uh, active duty uh, military members as well, but that's generally through our recurring family support programs like our back-to-school brigade, our holiday meals, holiday toys, and our Star Spangled Babies. Okay, so, so that's what's going on for, for active duty folks as well. Do you have any sorts of programs that reach in reserve or the guard components? They do, um, and those the guard and reserve components are, uh, are authorized and allowed to uh, apply just like an active duty service member. Um, so that those, so we are open to active guard and reserve families. So forty thousand requests. That's People. that's pretty amazing. And that's oh, since two thousand two. Wow. I'm not going to try to do yeah, the it, math in my head, but the, yeah. It's, yeah, it's actually since the program started. We didn't start the critical financial assistance program until two thousand and eight. So it's literally been uh, over the last less than ten years that we've been able to do forty thousand requests. So that's been quite a spectacular program. And what has been the, the most 
popular program of the of the three that you've got, or the three pillars? Well, our critical financial, our critical, our, yeah, our critical financial assistance program is what uh, we find is most popular. Um, we see families that are, are are requiring just some assistance to get through what we call the bumpy space that uh, that time where they may be having a little bit of difficulty making ends meet. Um, of course, our, our Homes on the Homefront program is, is very popular as well. Uh, just I wish I had more homes to give away. Um, you know, we have a waiting list that's, that's, that's quite extensive, but that is obviously very, uh, very popular as well. Um, we track all of, uh, all of our servicemen and women and their families on how they feel our programs are doing, and, and I'm really proud to report that we have uh, satisfaction ratings uh, upwards of 98 to 100%. Uh, so that's quite spectacular. I, I'm also very proud to report that uh, we have earned Charity Navigator's prestigious four-star rating for the 11 consecutive years. Wow. Only 1% of nonprofits can actually say that. Uh, so that's very, very exciting uh, for us. We, we take um, delivering on our promise very seriously. Everyone in the organization comes to work believing that we need to do all we can to take care of our military families in their time of need because of what they have done for all of us in our nation's time of need. Talking with John Prey, who's a retired Air Force Brigadier General and the CEO and President of Operation Homefront, which is operationhomefront.org. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to John about more of Operation Homefront. Chris, you're not acting like a grown-up in our relationship. M2, M2. There's your comic book collection, the race car bed. I'm young at heart, but I put money into my 401k every paycheck. I'm taking control over my financial life, and that feels pretty grown-up to me. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. Are those footy pajamas? This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with retired Brigadier General from the Air Force, John Prey, who's the president and CEO of Operation Homefront, which again is operationhomefront.org. And want to ask you a little bit about a, a program that you didn't mention, but which sounds really interesting, Hearts of Valor. What's that about? Hearts of Valor is our program. We, we categorize it in our resiliency way we do business because it has a long-term impact. But uh, Hearts of Valor is all about taking care of the caregivers, those that are caring for their loved one. Uh, we do know that uh, when we have those servicemen and women who come back with, with injuries, uh, they rely on caregivers to help them um, get through their lives. And oftentimes <clears throat> those caregivers face some very difficult challenges of their own, and we focus on helping those caregivers deal with their own uh, challenges and help them be better caregivers for their loved one. We have about 4,000 caregivers in our, uh, in our network uh, that spans across the United States and about 60 to 70 support groups. Now, do you help people get connected with other kinds of services? Because I know, for example, a lot of guys come back, they aren't necessarily aware that they can, and by guys, I mean guys and women as well, of course, anybody coming back and separating from the military, they may not be completely familiar with how to, how to connect with the VA. Uh, and if they've had any sort of issues, mental health issues with stress or anxiety or PTSD, uh, they may not be able to get the kinds of services that they need. Can they get direction from you on where to go and, and what to do? 
we can help uh, applicants who come to us uh, with a variety of needs. So when we have an applicant come to us, we normally have one of our caseworkers speak with that, that family and understand uh, their needs. And our, what I think is part of our secret sauce, so to speak, is uh, we have licensed social workers who act as caseworkers. So they are able to understand the various needs of our clients um, very well. And if we can't provide the services ourselves, we'll try to help direct them to where we feel that they can get the best help. Now, the two things that we don't do as an organization is we don't do anything that's related to medical uh, help, meaning okay. that we are not medical, we are not medical providers. Um, we we uh, are, are related. Uh, we, we know uh, about the medical systems, but that's way outside of our, our lane, and we want to stay in our lane, and we make sure that those servicemen and women and their families are getting the proper medical care from proper medical uh, officials. And so we don't do anything with regards to medical care. The other thing that we don't do is we don't do anything with re related to job searches. Uh, there are other organizations that do that and do that very well. And so um, we don't get into the job finding, job search, job okay. connection um, capacity as well. We focus on those things, those financial challenges that many of our military families face, whether they're in service as they transition out of service or once they're out into their civilian communities, we, we try to help them with some of those financial uh, circumstances. The goal for us is obviously to try to keep the family in the home. Uh, we feel that the home is uh, a very uh, – a good home is a solid foundation for them to build that brighter future. So a lot of what we do is focus on keeping families financially stable and financially in their homes. You know, one of the things that you mentioned was that uh, Charity Navigator has, has listed you in their their very good category, their top category. Um, and explain why that is. I think one, one of the most important things, I think, when people talk about, oh, a charity and you think about the, you're going to get scammed or half of the money is going to go to, to uh, you know, robocalls or whatever it is. But you guys are using, I think I just saw it, so I can't find it right now, 92% of uh, all the money that comes in is, is going directly to programs. And that's a, that's a very high ratio. It, it is a very high ratio. 90, you're exactly right. 92% of our expenditures go towards the programs we have. And so that is part and parcel of um, the charity rating agencies look at those uh, ratios. Uh, we call that the program efficiency metric. And they look at those ratios and a lot of other things with regards to our financials and our transparency and our good governance and, uh, and I'm proud to say that uh, not only are we receiving top marks from Charity Navigator, but we receive it from GuideStar, from Charity Watch, and, of course, the Better Business Bureau. So uh, all, all we get top marks from all of uh, those particular rating agencies. What is the, the biggest obstacle that you see to people turning to you to get the kinds of help that they might be able to get? One of the things I think is most um, critical to stress to your listeners in particular is the fact that many military members are reluctant to come and ask for help. Um, they tend to feel that they are self-sufficient and they'll work their way through problems, they'll work their way through challenges, and, and oftentimes they, it, it gets things built up to a point where they're very, very difficult and they're causing a lot of stress in a family. What I would encourage your listeners uh, is to reach out early and reach out and, and with no shame. Um, transitions are difficult. And as I said, we find military members in particular are 
very reluctant to ask for help. And so help is just right around the corner. Uh, now, mm-hmm. we, we don't help everybody. We're not able to do that. And, and that's the big challenge that we have uh, as a nonprofit is being able to support all the requests that we would like to do so. And so yeah. we have to have some budgetary limitations on that. And so sadly, we will say no to some folks simply because we will run out of resources. And so we have developed a variety of different pro- protocols and processes that try to allow us to rack and stack and, and rank order those needs from most uh, needy to, you know, down the, down the, down the road and down the, down the ranking. And we try to then fill the, the, the most pressing needs first. Uh, and so as, if someone is unable to get help one month, we say, please apply to us next month for we may be able to help you in the next month. If we're unable to help, we'll try to direct them to another helping organization. Um, but that's kind of what I, I find is, is uh, are the big challenges uh, that we as an organization face. One, from a, from a client perspective, those who need help, they are reluctant to ask for help. And then on the, the donation side, we, we, we could not do the wonderful work we do without some caring individual, corporate, and foundation donors. Um, and without their support and continued support, we would be un- unable to have the resources that we uh, have to help our military families uh, in need. Now, just to, to be absolutely sure, I know, I know what you're going to tell me, but i got to ask, because I know that people will ask me, uh, are, are the programs that you have, is this whole thing confidential? So if somebody turns to you, you're not going to sell their information to uh, some company that might try to get them, give them credit cards or, you know, I mean, the people, people worry about these things. We do not. Um, and that, that's a great question. They're, they're, we keep their, uh, all their information uh, confidential. We, um, uh, we, we never, ever want to be a vehicle by which other predatory people can reach into the military community. We're very, right. very careful about that. Uh, we never want to – there are a couple of red lines we, we have in our organization. We never want to have our military families ever look like they are victims in any way, or we never want to use them as props, meaning that they're just, can we drop them out to uh, attempt to raise money? Our whole focus, we have one of our core values is do the right thing. And right thing means whatever is in the best interest of those families. And that is the right thing. And so uh, I'm very proud that the entire organization has, of course, rallied around all of our core values, one of which, of course, is do the right thing. And that's taking care of our military families. Okay. So We've been talking about it, mentioned it a couple times, but the website is operationhomefront.org. What about volunteering? Because I would imagine that there, there are people who, I mean, I see them all over the website, these happy faces of people who are volunteering. Do they need to have been service-connected in some way, or can they just volunteer if they have their heart in the right place? It is really if they have their heart in the right place. Um, we do, you, someone does not have to serve as a prerequisite to being a volunteer. Like our um, like our, our our donors, we could not do our good work without our donors, but we could not do all the good work we do without, of course, some amazing volunteers. We have around 4,000 volunteers who really bring our mission to life across the United States. We only have about 120 people in the organization. That's paid staff. Uh, and without our volunteers, we would not have the reach we do, and we would not be able to do all the good that we do in all the various communities we do across the United States. 
John Prey is a retired Air Force Brigadier General and the President and CEO of Operation Homefront, which once again is Operation Homefront, all one word, dot org. You can find out how to volunteer, how to donate, and, and more importantly, if you are listening and find yourself in need of some aid, they're the place to turn to. John, thanks so much. Oh, Armin, thank you so much for allowing us to be on your show, and I wish you all the best. Thanks. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Don't be that guy. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my beautiful son was born just a few weeks ago, and I'm overjoyed. But my wife is a different story. She's very down in the dumps, barely eats, and has no energy. I know that giving birth took a toll on her, but I'm worried. What should I do? Well, about 70% of new mothers experience periods of mild sadness, weepiness, mood swings, sleep deprivation, loss of appetite, inability to make decisions, anger, or anxiety after a baby is born. These baby blues, which many believe are caused by hormonal shifts in a new mother's body, can last for hours or days, but in most cases they disappear within a few weeks. One researcher, Edward Hagen, however, believes that postpartum blues have less to do with hormones and is really caused by low levels of social support, especially from the dad. It could be, he says, the new mother's way of negotiating for more involvement from him. From your description, your wife is already exhibiting some of the symptoms of baby blues. Right now, there's not much you can do except be as supportive and involved as possible. Take on more of the child care responsibilities, encourage her to get out of the house for a while, and see to it that she's eating healthily. Most of what she's going through is completely normal and is nothing to worry about, so be patient and don't expect her to bounce back immediately. That said, for 10% to 20% of new moms, the baby blues develop into postpartum depression, which is more serious. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, postpartum depression, if not recognized and treated, may become worse or last longer than it needs to. Here are some symptoms to watch out for. Baby blues that don't go away after two weeks or feelings of depression, shame, or anger that surface a month or two after the birth. Feelings of sadness, doubt, guilt, helplessness, or hopelessness that begin to disrupt your partner's normal functioning. Unexplained episodes of crying, major appetite changes or a significant decrease in sex drive, inability to sleep when tired or sleeping most of the time even when the baby is awake, or to take pleasure. Marked changes in appetite, extreme concern and worry about the baby or a lack of interest in the baby and or other members of the family, or worries that she'll harm the baby or herself or threats that she'll do either one. If your wife does develop postpartum depression, you'll have a major role to play in helping her cope with and overcome it. Here's what you need to do. First of all, remind her that the depression is not her fault, that you love her, the baby loves her, that she's doing a great job, and that the two of you will get through this together. Also, do as much of the housework and childcare as you can so she won't have to worry about not being able to get everything done herself. Encourage her to take breaks regularly and frequently. 
Encourage her to talk with you about what she's feeling and to see her doctor or a therapist. Take over enough of the nighttime baby duty so your partner can get at least five hours of uninterrupted sleep. This means that you'll probably do a feeding or two, which is a great way to get in some extra dad-baby bonding. Get regular breaks to relieve your own stress. Yes, she's relying on you to help her, but if you're falling apart yourself, you can't be an effective caregiver. Postpartum blues and depression can be confusing, frustrating, and even frightening for your partner and you. But there is help. Your partner's doctor or the hospital where your baby was born will have lists of local organizations that offer resources, support, and guidance for both of you. If you've got a question or a comment about anything we've done here with Positive Parenting, whether it's one of our shows or one of these segments, please send us a line through our website, mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you, but don't go yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to. Nope. I'm sure you've got a perfectly good excuse. Kids, work. <laughs> I get it. You're busy. So what better time than now? Let's begin. Raise one finger if you're a man. Ladies, none yet. Oh, count in your head if you're driving. Now, three more fingers for everyone over 60, two over 50, one over 40, one more if you're not physically active, another finger if anyone in your family has type 2 diabetes, another if you've got high blood pressure. If you're overweight, raise another finger, two if you're very overweight, and three if you're really overweight. You've just taken the world's first audio prediabetes test. And if you're holding up five or more fingers, visit doihaveprediabetes.org or talk to your doctor. There's no excuse because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Parenting can seem never-ending, but it doesn't have to be. Later bedtime hours for children are extending parenting duty by several hours. Even worse, the later bedtimes are robbing our children and ourselves of much-needed privacy and rest. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about how to create an evening routine that works for parents and children. One of the biggest components of this is going to be to turn off technology. I know the prospect of cutting off a child from a social media app or a video game can feel like depriving them of oxygen, and the ensuing temper tantrums and irritability are sure signs that children are spending too much time in front of screens. And let's not forget about adults. A lot of surveys are showing now that adults are spending seven hours a day in front of their screens for personal use, and when you combine that with work use, it's over nine hours a day. So the kids are hardly alone in needing to have that technology turned off. By focusing on a two-hour window every evening, you're going to be able to meet your child's needs while also meeting your own. We'll talk about how you can bond with your children over a nutritious dinner, 
how to help your children with their homework, how to read with your children before bed, how to get the kids to bed at a reasonable hour that's a lot earlier than you might expect it to be, and how to enjoy some me time after the kids are in bed. If we could pack our kids in bubble wrap, we'd do it because we love them and we want to protect them. This is Lisa Edelstein with an easy way to protect your kids three times a day. Choose healthy foods. Research has shown that a vegetarian diet rich in fruits and vegetables can help protect our kids against obesity. It can even help keep them from developing heart disease or cancer when they grow up. To learn more, call 866-906-WELL or visit cancerproject.org. This message brought to you by The Cancer Project. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Heather Miller, who is the author of Primetime Parenting, the two-hour-a-day secret to raising great kids. Heather, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So you're going to pack all of parenting into just two hours. What do you do with the other 22? (laughs) Well, the idea is that, you know, with the advent of cell phones and, you know, uh, digital media, um, parenting has sort of become never-ending. Um, you know, schools, which, you know, in earlier years would have sort of dealt with problems as they came up and giving you a call in the evening, have a tendency to communicate with parents sort of on the spot, even in the middle of a workday, uh, for things that, you know, often could be dealt with a bit later. Um, and parents are also uh, have experiencing a sort of blurring of the line between their working hours and their parenting hours because of the ability to be reached at any uh, any moment. And so I think what primetime parenting with a two-hour routine, and this is for school nights, um, mostly between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m., it's advocating an idea that between those two hours, you're really focusing exclusively on your children and you're not checking your phone for various messages. You're not chatting with your sister, either via, you know, Facebook or um, on the phone. You're really just exclusively focused on the many tasks that parents have to take care of um, on school nights, which include everything from checking in with the kids, making sure that they, you know, you get a chance to hear about their day, to um, helping them get set up with homework, to cooking a healthy dinner, having a family dinner, which is incredibly important in all kinds right. of ways. Yeah, I want to get and into then, want know, to get into the of, components of it here in in some sure. detail. But yeah, so we're talking about it, really the the difference between this two hour prime time period and and everything else is that this is really a, a, a period of intense focus. And well, not yeah, uh, I guess intense focus, but also time. eliminating mm-hmm. eliminating distractions. Exactly. And the, one of the benefits of it is is that you really do hit all the bases with what parents need to do with their children every day. But then you also kind of get your kids to bed at a reasonable hour, which tends to be a bit earlier than most parents are, are managing. So, you know, primetime parenting is for kids ages 5 to 13. And a good bedtime for most kids in that age group would be about 8 or 8.30 p.m. And the beauty of that is if they do get to bed at that hour, not only do they get enough sleep, but parents get, you know, a couple of hours to themselves, which is also critically important for them to recharge and work on their own adult relationships. 
So everyone benefits from from primetime parenting. <laughs> okay, so let's let's go through the the time part of it. Sure. Um, you said it's it's generally from six to eight p.m. Is that be, you you have it set there so that it it's can encompass but, dinner and then yeah. it gets you close to bedtime. Exactly. I mean, of course, there's flexibility there, and every family would need to adapt it for their own uh, personal scheduling needs. But I would say somewhere between, you know, you should start somewhere between 6 and 6.30 and end somewhere between 8 and 8.30, principally because you want to get the kids to bed really no later by 8.30. Again, this is 5 to 13-year-olds. Um, teenagers would be a bit different. But that really enables them to have the 10 to 11 hours that most children in that age group need. Uh, in order to perform optimally at school and also to be um, in a good mood. You know, when children are sleep-deprived, they tend to act out. They tend to be cranky. They tend to have sure. difficulty concentrating. Yeah. So it makes a big difference to to how happy they are the rest of the time. So I just want to make sure that so, so there's you're not out shopping during this time. Did that hopefully no. you would have done that all. Okay, so this is this, these two hours are taking place in your home. In your home, exactly. Okay. And, All right. Because so when you, know, you said cranky, that just my my associations with cranky are often have to do with shopping, because <laughs> you're you're out there doing you know trying to do something when the kids are already hungry or they have other needs yeah. and yeah, yeah. So okay. So we're we're at home in a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So what? So <laughs> it, it starts off the first half hour. So you say six to six thirty. There's right. you're calling that the huddle. Yeah, I'm calling that the huddle. So whether you're an at-home parent or a parent who works outside of the home, I would think of 6 to 6.30 as the time when the, you know, evening hours begin. And that's when you're making a conscious point of checking in with your children, talking about their day a little bit, opening up the homework um, assignments, uh, looking at what's on the docket for this evening in terms of homework, and getting them set up to begin homework while you then begin dinner. And that's, you know, a time when you're kind of doing a bit of dividing and conquering. You want to get your children um, set up to start doing some homework independently while you are cooking. And, of course, you're going to be checking in on them. But it's a chance for them to show that they can actually do some work without someone hovering over them every moment of the, of, you know, the time. Yeah. Um, and knock out a couple of those assignments, you know, in time for dinner. So by 630 uh, dinner is, is happening, and that's a, you know a half hour, six thirty to seven is a family dinner where everyone's sitting around the table, um, having a rich conversation. And we all know that family dinner is probably the most important thing you could do for your children. It's more important than reading to your children, incredibly, in terms of their academic performance. It's a, a stronger predictor of academic success than even reading to your children. It's incredible. Well, let, wait, let's, also, let's, uh, mm-hmm. let's go back to the huddle part of it. So you're, yeah. you're hopefully, <laughs> make, I don't know, the, the, the prospect of getting a whole dinner made in a half an hour can be, uh, uh-huh. I guess that could be a lot for some people or not nearly enough mm-hmm. time for it, but we'll just go call it a, an average amount of time. But I, I wanted to ask about the homework part because sure. one of the components of this whole program of yours, the primetime parenting, involves, I don't want to say completely disconnecting, but largely disconnecting from technology. And even kids mm-hmm. 5 to 13, the age that you're talking about, a lot mm-hmm. of them need their computers mm-hmm. or tablets or something to get their homework done. Right. So how are you 
incorporating that, or, or are you trying to get them to do the assignments that don't involve technology, or are you, is that what the checking in is about? Well, I think that, um, first of all, I'm not anti-technology. I'm anti it being uh, something that we can't get away from. I think it's healthy. You know, being a healthy user of technology is knowing when it's useful to you and when it's not. Now, as an educator myself, I would not particularly advocate the use of um, screens or tablets in homework for children 10 and under. I just don't think that there is enough of a, uh, a value add there um, for the potential um, risks of over um, screen use. Um, but, you know, for kids whose schools have decided that they're going to use screens, and that's fair enough, and you're using screens um, to do your homework, and I don't have, you know, I don't have obviously an overriding objection. I'm not going to suggest that you don't do the homework that's been assigned well, no, that way. That wouldn't be right, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's perfectly fine if, you're, if your child's school um, has them using tablets or computers to do their homework, and that's what they would do. Okay, good. And so you're off making, yeah. making dinner, and then hopefully around a half an hour or so, they've gotten pretty well set up, and then there's going to be dinner, and you're going to be having the conversations you talked about. So there's a mm -hmm. break from homework, right? Is there's that... a break for homework, exactly. There's a half okay. hour, and there's a half hour of dinner, which is a break. And one of the other things that I recommend for kids between ages of 5 and 13 is that they do their homework at the dining table or the kitchen table or wherever it is that you have a kind of central table in your home because kids in that age group actually benefit from company, you know, uh, not necessarily supervision, but company. Um a lot of the ways that they kind of um, try to get out of doing homework has more to do really with loneliness, you know, than um, avoidance of work. Um, these kids at that age group really want mom and dad's company or the company of whatever caring adult is around. Yeah. So I would put them together at a, at a central table. And then if that's the dining table, they would clear it for dinner. And then after dinner, they, you know, set it up again for homework. And then it feels more like a group activity and less like you're being sort of punished, you know, by having to sit alone and do some work. Talking with Heather Miller, who is the author of Primetime Parenting. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Heather about what happens during dinner. I want to get a little bit more detail besides just talk to the kids. And also what's going on after dinner, which is, is the, the big part of primetime parenting. Uh, I'm Armin Brat, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Your kids are going for a bike ride, you make sure they wear a helmet. They insist on skateboarding, add knee pads and elbow pads too. Swimming in the pool, water wings, goggles, earplugs. If we could pack our kids in bubble wrap, we'd do it. Because we love them and we want to protect them. This is Lisa Edelstein with some very important news. Now there's an easy way to protect your kids three times a day. Choose healthy foods. Research has shown that a vegetarian diet rich in fruits, vegetables, and whole grains can help protect our kids against obesity. It can even help keep them from developing heart disease or cancer when they grow up. My friends at The Cancer Project are just waiting to hear from you so they can send you important information on how to protect your children from the inside out. Just log on to cancerproject.org or call 866-906-WELL. That's 866-906-WELL. This message brought to you by The Cancer Project.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Broad talking with Heather Miller, who's the author of Primetime Parenting, the two-hour-a-day secret to raising great kids. So here we are at dinner, and I, mm-hmm. I mean, this will sound like a silly question, but I, I think a lot of people dread, in a way, family dinners for this yeah. reason. What do you talk about? Well, of course, we all have the experience of asking our children what they learned that day at school and getting very unsatisfactory answers, (laughs) one-word answers. Um, Kids actually like to hear, you know, it takes some time to warm most kids up. And a good way to start is to tell them a little bit about your day or to tell them about something that happened um, in your childhood at school. And then they might start typing up about their own experiences. Um, other ways of getting the conversation going is to be sort of observational and say, you know, I noticed something on the way to work. I saw, you know, this thing and it made me think of that. And what do you think of that? Um, essentially, if the parents show some enthusiasm for having a conversation themselves, the kids will pick up on that cue and start um, contributing. Um, it's more when we try to turn it into kind of an academic exercise where it feels like you're being put on the spot and you have to report in, you know, that that doesn't feel very pleasant. So I think it's so important that we have these kinds of um, conversations that meander and go this way and that, and we don't have necessarily an agenda for it. It's more about kind of exchanging, you know, one's experiences of the day, one's thoughts, one's observations, and seeing if your kids have something that they would like to add. Um, and then people start getting into it and they start actually enjoying uh, conversations. I think another yeah. thing that's really important in today's world, we're seeing at, in every socioeconomic level, not just among you know, one class of kid or another, we're seeing a lack of face-to-face interaction, a lack of eye oh, yeah. contact, a yeah. lack of empathy. And that is 100%, in my opinion, due to being raised by parents who are constantly looking at screens themselves. And so they're not getting good enough modeling of what it feels like to have eye contact um, and how good it feels to be the object of someone's attention and interest um, over a sustained conversation. So that's one of the gifts of our family dinner. And just to, to reiterate this idea, it's not about grilling the kids. No. It's about engaging them in a conversation, which means that you may want to tell them about your day too. Absolutely. And I think parents often really underestimate how much their kids enjoy hearing about their own childhood. So stories from their childhood or stories about their grandparents. Children really, really love those stories and it's very good for them intellectually too. Um, It introduces a range of um, tenses and moods and voices, grammatically speaking, that they wouldn't otherwise hear when we start talking about the past. And it just expands their understanding of of time and history and the world and the way the world changes. Um, There's no way that you can lose with those stories, even if they're rolling their eyes at you as they (laughs) turn in, you know, as they get into the middle school years and they tend to do that kind of thing. They are secretly enjoying it. (laughs) So I think that's a really good place to start. All right, so dinner's over. Hopefully the kids are yep. involved in clearing the table and loading the dishwasher and all that stuff. And Actually, I would, dis- I would disagree with you there. I, okay. I would have them clear <laughs> the table. I would have them clear the table, but especially if your kids are going to a school with a significant amount of homework, 
I would have it end at clearing the table and have, have them back at the table doing uh, their work. Okay. And I would also recommend having parents not do the dishes until the kids are in bed. Okay. Just because not it's bad. so important to get that homework done. Um, and at this point in the evening, the after dinner, which is about 7 to 7.30, that's when I, I think I call it the homework hustle, when parents sit with their children at the dining table and are actively sort of project managing the homework. Okay. And how does that, that work? I mean, particularly mm-hmm. for kids, I'm just thinking of my, my youngest who is very insistent on wanting to do everything herself. Doesn't want yeah. to show, doesn't want to show anything to anybody, just wants to right. do it. Right. Well, I think there's a lot of confusion or a lack of clarity about what is the parent's role in homework. So I like to think of it as project management. It is not the parent's job to do the homework, but it is the parent's job to make sure that it's been done, that they know what the homework is, and that it's been done to a serious level of effort, which is not to say that it has to be correct, but it does have to reflect, you know, a serious effort. So those are two different things. So um, what parents should be doing is they should be sitting down with their child, looking at their homework planner for many kids even getting the homework neatly written down in the homework planner or whatever they use is a challenge. It's an organizational challenge that they learn over time. So even that step of parents sitting, you know, saying, show me what you've got for homework and making sure that the kid has written it down correctly, that's a very important parenting duty. Then asking the child, all right, which one, which task do you want to do first? Which assignment do you want to do first? And why would you do that one first? Is it because it's easy for you and it's a good one to just get done quickly? Or is it because you think it's going to be hard and you want to get it done while you're still sort of fresh? Um, Having those kinds of conversations and helping the child be strategic about how they get their homework done is a very important developmental uh, process. It will help the child get better and better at thinking through how to do work and how to get it done and how to also face down tasks that they don't particularly want to do, but know they have to do. And then I advocate in the book the use of timers, which can be extremely helpful in getting the child to concentrate. Yeah, talk about that, how how you do that, because that can be kind of dicey too. Yeah, Well, for most children and most adults, for that matter, concentrating on a task is quite difficult. And especially those first few minutes of uh, getting into a task are very difficult. And so um, I have found that using timers um, can be extremely effective at helping a child grow their concentration span. Because concentration is something that will expand with practice in a beautiful way. So with a child with very low attention span, I would say, all right, let's set a timer for 30 seconds. And here's what we're going to do. You're going to work on that worksheet for 30 seconds. And you're not going to look up. You're not going to do something else. You're not going to try to chat with me about something. If you find something difficult, you're just going to work through it until the timer goes off. And then when the timer goes off, you can have a 30-second break, and then we'll go back into it. What happens is, even just for 30 seconds, the child starts noticing that they're pretty good at solving problems. And they start actually enjoying the process of concentrating. They notice that instead of it feeling anxiety-inducing, it's actually kind of relaxing to be able to focus exclusively on one thing at a time. And they start solving problems that they Mm. might otherwise have turned into the parent's problem. Um, And so then you keep lengthening the time of the timer. You go to one minute, two minutes, three minutes, and the child 
you know, notices that they're able to work for longer and longer periods of time, and they can see that they are getting their homework done well and quite fast. Yeah. And um, it's a very satisfying experience, and it pays off beautifully for the on those standardized exams too, where they have to concentrate for long periods of time. That's, I like it's like uh, a muscle. I like the thirty second thing because I think that the the initial thing that popped into my mind, and probably a lot of other people, is five minutes. But five minutes may right. be a long time for especially right. a child at the young end of that range. That's right. And it, it's, you know, when it's nice and short, like 30 seconds, it feels fun. You know, it's not a big commitment. Anyone can concentrate. A five-year-old can concentrate for 30 seconds. And then you, you're sort of racing against the clock, which also helps concentration. Yeah. So it's a very effective tool, especially, you know, for any child or any adult for that matter. Um, and it helps us overcome some of the anxiety that a lot of us face as we begin working on something that, that makes us avoid the task altogether. Yeah. Now, we're, we're almost out of time. We have just about a minute left. But I, I think an important, sure. important component of this, this uh, homework hustle part of it is getting ready for the, the next morning so that you can avoid yeah. the, where is your homework? What did you, what did you do with it? That's What's right. in your backpack? So that's making sure that the backpack is loaded the night before. That's right. So it ends absolutely with the parent assisting the child in packing the bag. It takes about five minutes. It's not about the parent packing the bag. It's about a conversation between parent and child saying, you have this, you have that. Where did we put this? Where did we put that? And so it's all packed and ready to go by the door for the next day. And that's critically important. I think one thing important you know, for parents to realize is when you see that super organized child in your kid's class, that child didn't organize that bag themselves. They have a parent who understands that you have to do a lot of work with your child um, every night to help them um, organize themselves so that they turn into an organized person. It doesn't just happen. Heather Miller is the author of Primetime Parenting, the two-hour-a-day secret to raising great kids. Heather, is there a website people can check out for more info? Absolutely. It's www.heather-miller.com. Okay. Great. Heather, thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks very much to Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They've been proudly serving the Armed Forces Department of Defense veterans and their families for over 80 years. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.